Let us now turn to our scripture for this morning. It's coming from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Pastor Bill will be preaching uh, the sermon entitled, Is There Hope for This World? You can turn to that, and I'll be reading it for us. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And we're continuing our teaching series this morning in the book of Jonah. It's a book that's all about the nature of God's radical grace. And it's about the many different ways that God extends that grace to people who don't deserve it. It's a message of hope. And it's not just a message of hope to God's people, but it's a message of hope for the larger world. It's a message that's really timely for us. Very hard to find things in our world right now that are hopeful. Now, why is that? Well, several different reasons. One of them is because we live in a sin-cursed world. And when you live in a sin-cursed world, there is always something ugly happening, some manifestation of evil, some manifestation of suffering that is taking form in some way. And you have to just get used to it. That's the reality in which you and I live our lives. Study history, and you will find it littered with natural disasters, global plagues, injustice, violence, social unrest, all of the things that we're experiencing in our present moment. It's not to make light of what's going on or to adopt a laissez-faire attitude toward the particular forms that evil is taking right now, but it is to say that it's hard to have hope in this world because evil is constantly at work. It's constantly destroying everything that is good, everything that is beautiful. And after a time, while, you start to feel worn down as you see and hear one more thing. That's true now. That's been true throughout humanity's history. It's hard to be hopeful in a world in which evil takes place. But it's also hard to be hopeful when you are regularly refocused on all of the ugliness around us. See, in a broken world, nothing sells like fear. And since media outlets are businesses, they have a bottom line, they have to vie for market share, and it just makes sense that the news cycle then is going to be regularly filled with fear-provoking headlines, fear-provoking stories. It's reporting that does what? It, it, it hooks you emotionally, and it seeks to draw out of you an emotional response. The possibility that my way of life, that your way of life might be disrupted does what? It drives us back again and again and again to this outlet that is uh, alerting us to that danger. And we come back because we want to make sure that we're going to be okay or that we're at least going to be prepared for what happens. News agencies know that. And so you're regularly bombarded with things that are frightening, things that are scary, things that are ugly. They do that because they know that it draws you back. Now that makes sense and you can sort of analyze that mentally, but if you have a steady regular diet of that, it should not surprise you if you grow less hopeful and more fearful. Those things are priming you to be hopeless, but they don't force you into hopelessness. You also have to be involved. You have to buy into that way of seeing life. 
To be hopeless, there has to be something out in the real world that is evil, and you have to have your attention brought to it. But to become hopeless, to be discouraged, to be despairing about the evil that you see means that you have to adopt a certain perspective on that thing that you see. You have to view it from a certain perspective. You have to see it as supreme. You have to believe that it has no rival, that it's the most powerful, most enduring aspect of reality. And so you have to look at that evil thing as having so much momentum that you can't imagine anything slowing it down. Or you have to see it as being so widely dispersed throughout life that you can't imagine anyone ever being able to uproot all of the strands of it. Or you have to see it as so persistent that nothing is ever going to be able to make it go away. In short, you have to look at evil from a very narrow perspective, one that says evil has no rival in this world, and you have to start to believe that God is not involved in that picture. And so you have to look at those things and discount God's active involvement in this world. And when you do that, whether you do that intentionally or whether you do that unintentionally, you just sort of fall into that as a pattern, when you do that, you will become hopeless. You'll start to think things like, why bother trying? There's nothing anybody can do about this. And when you go down that road, you can expect to find hopelessness expressed in you in some fashion. Now, hopelessness has different forms. Some people, they get discouraged. That's a soft kind of hopelessness. It's one that quietly retreats and just quits. Other people get jaded and cynical. That's a hard-edged kind of hopelessness, one that's always sneering, one that's always angry. Some people go really extreme. They call for revolution. That's a desperate kind of hopelessness, one that insists reform is not possible. Evil is too entrenched and too widespread, so just blow it all up and start again. You know, because that's never been tried before. But sure, surely this time, we can figure out a way to make a world without evil. Or maybe you just simply are anxious and worried and fearful. Once you factor God out of the equation, once you pretend that he's not involved, and you look at evil, it will drive you to despair. It'll drive you to hopelessness. Now, thank God there is an antidote. Shift your gaze. Look for God. Look for what he's doing. And what do you discover? You discover that hope starts to bubble back up again. Look for what God is doing, and you'll realize evil will not always triumph. God's involvement is enough to bring life and goodness, not only into the life of individuals, but it's enough to breathe life into societies. That's what you see in today's passage in the city of Nineveh. Verse 5 of today's passage, everyone, from the greatest of them to the least of them, all the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. What they do? They repented. That's what fasting and sackcloth meant in that day. They repented, this is important, together. Society came together. Their repentance was swift. It was citywide. Social classes set aside their differences. The greatest and the least did what? They united. They did the same thing together for a common purpose. They worked for the common good of their, of their city for the good of their society. They bypassed despair. They bypassed cynicism. They bypassed revolution and anxiety, and they ended up with something really worth having. And you look at that and you ask the question, how is that possible? 
And that's not a rhetorical question. Instead, it's the cry of all of our hearts right now. How is that possible? Because what we really want to know is, is it still possible? Is that something that we can have today? And the answer is yes, but you have to find it in the same place where Nineveh found it. Not by ignoring God, but by focusing on him. Specifically, focusing on four things about him that you see in today's passage. You have to focus first on his unchanging passion for his world, his love for this world. Second, you have to focus on his unwavering purpose for his world. He has an end goal. He has an objective that he is not quitting on. Third, you have to focus on his method of calling people to align with his purpose, the means by which he calls people to adopt his goal. And fourth, you have to focus on his involvement, on how he's at work to change this world, on his supernatural work in people so that they want to be on board with him. If you want to have hope for this world, then you have to see God's passion for it, his purposes for it, his method to get us there, and his involvement. Focus on those four things, and you'll find your hopelessness turning to hope. You'll be filled with hope. So first, God's passion for his world. Jonah, after being in the belly of the fish, has been vomited out onto dry land, and once he's there, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is a second chance for Jonah. A second chance to obey God. The second chance to obey the one that he has disobeyed. And that tells you something about God. It tells you something about his heart for his people. Listen to what God says, and you learn something about who he is on the inside. You learn that he gives people second chances but it actually tells you a whole lot more about God because this is a whole lot more than simply about Jonah. This word comes to Jonah a second time because God is determined he's going to get his message to the Ninevites, the message that they're facing judgment. Now, why is God so intent on getting this message to them? It's because as the prophet Ezekiel tells us, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. When bad people die, God is not delighted. He's not elated. He's not thrilled. It's a good thing that they can't harm other people. It's a good thing that they can't ruin his glory. But God does not enjoy their death. It brings him no pleasure. He's not that kind of God. There is something that brings him joy, that brings him pleasure, and that is when people turn from their wickedness. And so when God looks down at the city of Nineveh, a city whose evil is so great that in chapter 1, he no longer can overlook it. When he sees this city, he thinks that the very best thing that would happen is that they would be warned of his coming judgment, that they'd have the opportunity to turn back from their evil, to turn back and be forgiven. That's how God thinks that you're supposed to treat your violent enemies. You don't ignore them. You don't find a way to get them before they get you, but you offer them the chance to do what's in their best interests. You offer them the chance to be forgiven. That's God's passion for this world. God loves this world. God loves the people in it, even those who have done great evil. And he underlines that in verse 3. The ESV translates a Hebrew idiom there as it's talking about Nineveh, and it says, Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. It's a good translation. 
the idiom helps you understand why that's a good translation. Because if you translate it literally, it would read, a great city to God. It's a great city, not because it's big. It is that. It's a great city because it's significant, a great city to God. It's a city that matters. It's an important urban center. It's the capital of the Assyrian nation. It's a city of power, of politics, of connections, a city of knowledge, a city of learning, a city of culture, a city of commerce. It's an important place that draws all the best and the brightest to itself, people who interact with that culture and that power that they find there, people who make a home there and who end up being influenced by what they experience there. And it's a city that then impacts the rest of the nation and because of who Assyria is, it impacts the rest of the world. And so it exports those thoughts and those beliefs, those practices, that culture that is embodied there in Nineveh. And God says his heart, his passion is to reach that city, to reach this world, to reach the power centers of this world that shape and inform what takes place across the rest of the world. This is a great city to God, an important one. And you learn here that God is passionate about places like Nineveh, places like Philadelphia, places like the suburbs of Philadelphia. He's passionate about the people who live in and around these centers of power. Passionate that they have the opportunity to stop rejecting him and that they have the opportunity to embrace him, to turn to him, to embrace the things that he embraces. If you want to have hope in a world that's filled with evil, you have to see that God is passionate, that he does not surrender this world to evil, but that he insists that it have the opportunity to turn back to him. If you want to have hope, you have to see his passion. Second, you have to have a sense of God's purpose for this world, a sense of his design, a sense of what God is striving for, and a sense also of what he absolutely will not tolerate. What does God expect from his world? He expects that it would reflect his glory. And that means that there would be a complete absence of evil. That's the problem that he sees in chapter 1, verse 2, that this is a great city that is full of evil and wickedness. Now, it's evil that he sees, but apparently it's also evil that the people there see. We didn't read this verse, but if you skip down chapter 3, verse 8, the king is giving instructions to the people on how to repent and on what they should repent over. And he says there, verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You think, wait, the violence that is in his hands. God didn't say anything about violence through Jonah. But apparently the form that their wickedness takes is not only obvious to God, but the application is obvious to them. They know that they're a violent people. That's what moves them to fast and to put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Now think about that for a moment. From the greatest to the least, the various social classes each had some kind of violence that they all could see. Something that they know violates the basic human understanding of how we are to treat each other. Now how did they do that? How do the greatest, those who have money, power, influence in a society, how do the greatest do violence to those without money, power, and influence? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? They use their power to enslave others. 
to rip them off, to take advantage of them, so that the greatest can retain and grow their power at the expense of those who already don't have near enough. But that doesn't mean the least. Those without power, without access to the goods and resources of society, that doesn't mean the least are innocent of violence. They have their own ways of being violent. You know that. They can use their numbers to revolt against those in power. They can riot, they can commit crimes, they disrupt social systems. And God's call does not single out any one particular social class and say, you're the real problem, so you repent, and everybody else is okay. Instead, he sends Jonah to the city, to the city in general, and he calls everyone to repent from the specific form that their wickedness takes. He calls everyone to turn away from the way that they do evil and the way that they do violence. Calls them to turn away from how they harm other human beings. In other words, God looks down and he sees the whole city as violent. Everyone with their own portion of violence and he calls all the social classes to repent. Now it's true, the particular ways that people express violence will change because the temptations and options that are open to you are different based on your social location. But this is important. From God's perspective, no one is exempt. No one is excused from how they do violence. He sends Jonah to Nineveh, not to any one place, not to any one people group within Nineveh. Every one of them has tried to hurt or weaken others in some way, and everyone in Nineveh understands that. See, there's a sense, even in people who don't know God, there's a sense in all of us of God's righteous demands on us, a sense that we owe someone, we owe him an explanation, an accounting for how we treat other people. And there's a sense in each of us that we've not lived up to what we should have. And the people of Nineveh get that. They know deep down that our duty to each other does not flow from our own individual personal ethics, the things that we think are right. It does not flow from a social contract, the things that everybody else thinks are right. They know that we owe God an answer for how we treat each other because of how we live with respect to what he wants from us. And so the Ninevites repent. God has the expectation that this world will reflect his glory, that it will have an absence of violence and evil. But God does more than expect it. He promises that that's the way it's actually going to be. And so he tells the city through Jonah, verse 4, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Overthrown is a really scary verb. If you go back through the scriptures, you, you discover this is the same verb used for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah when God rained down fire onto the cities. It's a very scary verb. But it's also a verb that offers a way out. Because the root word in that verb means to turn. And so it can have different kinds of meanings. It can have that destructive meaning, to turn over, to be overturned, to be overthrown. That's the uh, meaning it has with Sodom and Gomorrah. Or it can mean to turn around, to be transformed. Book of 1 Samuel, chapter 10, God uses this same word when he promises to give Saul his spirit. And in that process, he says, I will overthrow you. I will, what, change you, transform you into a different person. 
In other words, when speaking to Nineveh, God just made a promise. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be different. Either it will be wiped off the face of the map, overthrown, or the people will remain and be fundamentally different from what they currently are. They'll be transformed. Either way, he's very insistent. Their violence will end. Now that was true in Nineveh's day. It's true now. God is not going to simply put up with how we mistreat each other. There will be an end because that's his purpose for this earth. You can count on it. And yet in the same way that he's patient with Nineveh, he's also patient with us. Don't miss that in this passage. God has decided this is what my world will be like. Nothing here to debate. It will be free from violence. But he allows the violent to have a part in deciding how the world will be free. They can either work against him and his desires and be destroyed, overthrown, or they can work with him by adopting his way of life as their own and be transformed. Either way, change is coming, point two, because God has a purpose for his world that's hopeful. His preference, even more hopeful, is that people would work with him because point one, he's passionate for the people of this world. So point three, how does he invite people to align themselves with him and, and with what he's doing? How does he invite them to align with him in this eradication of violence? Well, very simply, he sends them a message of wrath. He tells them he's about to destroy them if they don't turn back. Now that message might make you uncomfortable because our modern age mocks those kinds of sermons. We belittle them, we call them fire and brimstone messages, and yet that's the message that God gives Jonah. Look at it again. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There is no softness in that message. The people of the city, when they hear that, they're not even sure if God will respond to them if they change. Again, we didn't read this section, but if you're down in verse nine of chapter three, the king says to the people, after he invites them to repent, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger. Who knows? I don't. If we repent, he might turn from his fierce anger, but we don't know that for sure. What we do know, the king says, is that if we don't, we will be overthrown. Clearly, Jonah had not elaborated on the options that they had. He came preaching this very short message that laid out a serious threat, a message of holy wrath. And he preached that message because that's exactly what God wanted the people to hear. God told Jonah, verse two, to call out against Nineveh the message that I tell you. He didn't give Jonah permission to fiddle with the message. It was short and fiery. In 40 days, you will not exist, not as you do now. Now it's true. Romans chapter two, verse four, puts it this way, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, that it's the grace of God, it's the goodness of God. That's true. If you don't know that God is kind, that he will receive you, or in this case, that he might possibly receive you, you won't bother repenting. It's his kindness, not his wrath, that draws you to him. His kindness when you know that you deserve his wrath. But it's equally true that you won't repent 
if you don't think there's anything to repent of. That's where the message of wrath comes in. God is letting people know that he's offended, that what they have done is not merely violence against each other, it is violence against him. And he's not going to put up with it any longer. The message of wrath is necessary if this world's going to have any hope, if it's going to have any hope of dealing with evil. And yet we need to acknowledge here that this message is a little more nuanced than simply tell people that they're going to hell. We need to have these evangelistic messages that do proclaim the wrath of God. But remember here how the city responded. This message was the catalyst for the warring classes of society to put aside the violence that they had planned against each other and to come together for the common good. They understood that this evangelistic message to themselves personally had implications for social change. Preaching wrath and judgment fearlessly, that's part of the message. Doing justice fearlessly is part of the message. Caring for those who are hurt by injustice, those two go together. And the church today really struggles. Churches tend to fall off on one side or the other. They tend to either uh, emphasize evangelism, others emphasize social justice. The two belong together. When you hear the message of God's righteous judgment, of his wrath, and when you respond, it changes how you would treat other people that you might otherwise have wronged. So point three, this method that God has for inviting people is to preach wrath and do justice. That's how point two, God intends to change this world, that point one he cares so deeply about. Get hold of that and you'll be more hopeful about this world. And that message of wrath and justice really does change people. Why is that? It's because God himself changes people. Point four, he is personally, supernaturally involved in bringing this world to where he wants it. There is no other way to account for the success that Jonah has. Think about it. Jonah's a foreigner to Nineveh. He's from another nation. He's from a rival nation. He shows up with a one-line sermon that's simply a bare pronouncement. Do you have any idea how easy it would have been just to dismiss him? If you heard him in that moment as a political rival, someone who's trying to enhance his nation's power at the expense of your own, you would say what? You'd say his words were seditious, and then you'd execute him. Or if you thought this was an interesting perspective, if you heard him as an expert on how to solve social concerns or economic interests, you'd say he's offering his opinion. He's giving us better ways to approach societal issues and you might debate him. Or if you heard him as a madman, just spouting off, then you'd say he was insane. His words are unreasonable and you'd hospitalize him. It would be so easy to ignore Jonah, to think of him in political terms, academic terms, medical terms, and the city didn't. They thought he was a prophet. They thought he was a prophet from God who had divine revelation for them that they absolutely needed to hear. Why is that? Some people have pointed to a number of events that had recently taken place in the nation of Assyria. Things that people took as omens of worse things to come. So things like a series of famines that had afflicted the nation or 
plagues that had come through or revolutions or eclipses, signs and events in the heavens. And so the argument goes that people were primed to hear a word of judgment and when one came, they embraced it. They need to be very careful because that's a, a way of thinking that can easily slide in underneath if you're not careful. It's an argument that fits with the way that our modern world thinks about people. Be very easy to walk away believing what you just heard, that it was due to certain external events that produced this revival. And if that's what you're thinking, then you would either explain this revival away because of those events, or you might try to duplicate some of those events in order to get your own revival. That danger comes because our modern philosophies and our modern worldviews believe that the most significant forces on a human being come from outside of ourselves. They come from what happens to us, not from inside of us. Our worldviews believe that external events, external pressures, can fully account for what we do as human beings. And if you want to understand why someone does what they do, the thinking goes, then study what has happened to them, look at what they've experienced, and then you'll understand why they're doing the things that they do. So in Nineveh's case, if an entire population embraces Jonah's words, if they don't discount him, then what? Then look for things like famines, plagues, revolutions, and eclipses, because that will explain why the people embrace these words as coming directly from God. Now listen, just think for one moment, and you realize that explanation cannot be true. Because those kinds of things happen all the time. Famines, plagues, revolutions, eclipses, they happen all the time, and you don't see revivals automatically generated from them. You don't see those external forces and events producing a rejection of evil, a rejection of violence. You don't see those events producing revivals. They don't produce deep personal change across broad social classes, which tells you that there has to be something else in play here, something other than mere external forces. Something, however, that is not individual, but that has gone across an entire society and moved an entire society, something that you can only explain as a supernatural work, something that has caused many different kinds of people to reject a fundamental aspect of their culture, violence. You're seeing the effect of a work of God, a work that causes people not only to hear Jonah's words, but to take those words in as the direct revelation of God to them, a revelation of who they are before the face of God and a revelation of what they have to do given what God has said about them. And that's the same work of God that he's doing today. When you're hopeless, it's in part because you don't believe that. It's because you don't expect God to be supernaturally at work in people, either in yourself or in the people all around you. Now, if that was true that he wasn't, then there is no hope. There was no hope for Nineveh and no hope for their world, and there'd be no hope for us and our world. But because God is that interested, he's that passionate about people, because he longs for people to embrace the world that he longs for, he does what he changes people from the inside. So they start to respond to his words and they turn from evil and they're not overthrown. 
So what do you do this morning if you're hopeless, if you're overwhelmed by what you keep seeing in this world? If that's where you are, you have to go back and figure out where you've not been seeing God, where you've not seen his passion for this world, where you've not realized how committed he is to removing violence and evil from this world, where you wish there was a different message that you could bring to this world to move it, or where you don't really believe that he's hard at work, right now changing people so they'll embrace his message. If you miss even one of those aspects of who God is and what he's doing, it will tend to move you toward hopelessness. You'll tend to be pessimistic. Now here's the good news. You don't have to be. You can do what Nineveh did. You can turn back to him. You can cry out to him that he would give you the same revelation that he gave the Ninevites, that this is the word of the Lord for the sake of the world, that he will absolutely make sure comes to be by his own power. Ask him for that, that confidence that that's what he's doing. Don't let yourself think, oh, that must have been nice for them. Instead, think like Paul. When Paul is unpacking the history of Israel for the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. They're written down for us. This is not a long ago and far away historical event that we can sort of safely tuck away a couple thousand years ago. This is in scripture, why? For us, it's written for us. It's written for you. It's written to build up your faith that this is still the way that God works. Or maybe more accurately, that it's the start of how God works and that what he's doing now is much, much more than that. That's the argument that Jesus makes to a crowd that's in front of him. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, this generation in front of him is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south, he takes a little aside here, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the ju judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something then great, greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh's repentance was huge. It set the standard for how you have to hear the word of God and for how you have to respond. And yet what God did in Nineveh was just a starting point. It was the precursor to what he had in mind when something greater than Jonah was here. Jonah came to Nineveh and he represented God. He represented God's heart to people who hated him. Something greater is here. God has come himself. He didn't send someone else. Jesus came personally. He's more passionate about people than you've begun to imagine. Something greater is here. Jonah came to one important city. Jesus came to an entire world. Something greater is here. Jonah came to give 120,000 people 40 days to get on board with God. Jesus has given countless billions of people 
two millennia. He's not done yet. Something greater is here. Jonah had people lay down their violence so that they could escape death. Jesus gave himself into the hands of violent men, embracing death to keep his people from being destroyed. Something greater is here. Jonah's message was temporary. Nineveh would sin later and be destroyed. No one who comes to Jesus will ever be separated from him. They'll never be separated from his love. They will live with him in his kingdom, which will have no end. Something greater is here. Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. That was great. But now something greater is here. Someone greater is here. And therefore, as the book of Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every violation, every transgression received a just punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We can't neglect this great salvation because something greater is here. Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. You and I have to repent at the preaching of Jesus. Don't look for God to do less in your life now than he did ages ago with other people. Look for him to do more. More for you so that you grow hopeful about the world that you live in. And more for the people around you. Don't look for God to do less in them. Look for him to do more as you call them to embrace this God that longs to, for them to join him. Let's pray. Lord, our minds and our hearts are so fixed on so many things that have nothing to do with you. Lord, it is so easy to know that we are called by you and know that we are Christians and yet to functionally leave you out of our daily lives. Please, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we repent, I repent, my friends repent because we are longing for more. Lord, you are here now. Something greater is here. We want to see that reality in our lives. We want to see that reality in our community. We want to see that reality in our country. Lord God, bring revival. Bring repentance from evil. Bring repentance from violence. Bring our communities back together. In Jesus' name, amen.